You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Toronto Basketball Matters, podcast number 20. Guys, I'm going to give you a little bit of a breakdown of what we're going to do today. So we're fortunate enough to be joined in studio with former Basketball Canada CEO and current co-chairman Wayne Parrish. Uh, We're going to touch base quickly on uh, Canadian hoops, uh, Toronto basketball. Uh, Greg will do a fantastic interview with him. Uh, Grafham will join him as well. Going into the second half of the podcast, we're going to give you an Atlantic podcast. Uh, conference preview. We're also going to touch base on the Carmelo Anthony trade rumors, Andrew Wiggins re-signing with the Minnesota Timberwolves, and our top five favorite Canadian basketball players of all time. And with that, guys, tune the music. Hello Toronto, we are here with Mr. Wayne Parrish, co-chair and former president, CEO of Canada Basketball. Canada Basketball, for those who don't know, is an NGO, national sporting organization run by a volunteer board of directors and a full-time professional staff. These are the people who field our teams to compete in FIBA. I quickly want to turn the mic over to our guest. Wayne, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself a little bit. I I tried to research you. You have varied experience. I don't think I would do it justice. But if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. Greg, I'll do that. I'll happily do that. Um, my background is varied. Um, a checkered, some might say. Um, <laughs> but it. Uh, but I was. Uh, I began my career many years ago as a as a journalist, um, a print journalist specifically. Uh, worked at newspapers in Vancouver, uh, Montreal, and Toronto. Um, worked in radio and television off and on through those early years. Um, made the move to the business side of media mm-hmm. uh, at uh, sort of a uh, may, maybe late first half of my career. Um, and then made an unexpected turn about a decade ago when I got involved with uh, the National Governing Body for Basketball. You alluded to that a moment ago. Um, and uh, and have continued uh, have continued with that organization and had a great amount of fun and and I think we've accomplished some things over the last decade. Um, but I've also spent a lot of the last decade working in media as well. Um, and I my my twin loves from the first time I uh, opened a newspaper, my hometown of Vancouver Sun, in uh, ah. when I was six or seven years old, have been media and sports. And so to the extent that you're your audience is interested in those. Uh, I can at least share some of my experiences. Fantastic. You mentioned Canada basketball and your involvement there. What is a typical day 
uh, of work related to that, just so we can get an idea of what the tasks are. Sure, sure. It's a great, it's a great question, Greg. And, and I mean, most there are fifty six uh, national sport uh, organizations in the countries mm-hmm. in the country, mm-hmm. um, and nineteen of them are involved in team sport. Um, the others are individual sport, and they all do basically the same thing, but they do it they do it in at different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two principal mandates, and this applies to Canada basketball and many, if not all, of the other fifty five. One is to field the national teams, yep. um, uh, national uh, for international competitions, um, and the second one is to uh, develop and promote uh, and grow the particular sport across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the latter one is is one that's often overlooked, but it's probably the most important um, uh, responsibility that NSOs have. And that work is not generally, and again, it varies from NSO to NSO, but it's generally not um, conducted directly. It's conducted through partners. And so in most cases, the provincial and territorial, in the case of basketball, provincial and territorial basketball associations are members of Canada basketball. I see. Um, see. So are the basketball officials. So is is, um, um, Mm U-Sports, CCAA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we work with them to develop pr- programs um, that they then deliver. Yeah. And sometimes they deliver it through surrogates as well. So it could go down two levels mm-hmm. where it's being delivered by a private organization. Um, and as part of that responsibility, um, in the case of Canada ba- basketball, we do oversee the sport across the country and, and sanction or, or, or try and set the standards by which the sport is run, governed, officiated, drug tested, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in those, in the latter situation, I mean, we're not, um, we don't always have full control. In fact, often we don't have full control. Mm -hmm. And so you try and get the job done through a, a, through a variety of means and often persuasion is, is the best tool in the, uh, in, in the toolbox. Um, So it, it sounds like the game of basketball in Canada uh, specifically emanating from the work of this particular NSO, it, it seems like it's evolved into sort of like a intersectoral, inter. Uh, you mentioned the partnerships. Yes, yes, right? absolutely. NGOs, private spheres. Uh, I would imagine also uh, public entities like like the city of Toronto. Maybe they have rec programs that. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and it's interesting because you can trace each each sport um, traces can trace its history in in Canada and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in the case of uh, we happen to be in a sport which was invented by a Canadian that's right albeit Ms. Uh, Dr. Naismith Dr. Naismith albeit he did so in Springfield Massachusetts uh-huh. at the YMCA uh-huh. there in 1891 but it was interesting because of the the seven guys who were on the court the first afternoon he tacked up the peach baskets um, three of them came back to Canada a year later in, in 1892. Um, one settled in the West in Victoria, one settled in Montreal. And I always use that as an example of how the sport of basketball grew up mm. in very different ways in very different regions of the country. The That's rules right. that they brought back were slightly different. And when Canada Basketball or its antecedent, the Amateur Basketball Association of Canada, uh, was formed in 1923, so that was whatever that is, 33 years after the game hmm. was first played in the country. By that time, it was played in pockets and communities all over, but the rules were different, a lot of things were different, 
and a lot of people had different theories about how it should be run and governed. And so, I mean, I often, I've often thought of sport in this country, and I suspect it's sport throughout the world, but it's, it's kind of like herding cats. And, <laughs> and, the, and the reality is, I think we can trace that very legitimately to those very early days, the way it was formed. It didn't just sort of land on everybody's laps across that's Canada right, and say, this right. is how the game is played, that's and this right. is what you need to do. It's, wow, that's um, actually a fascinating history lesson, right? And it speaks to how sport is contextual and often grows out of certain social milieus, right? And 100%. only now, you know, with modern media and, you know, the internationalization of things, we have to standardize it. Yes, indeed. Right? Yeah. But, but, you know, I'm just imagining in, in, in my head the difference between the East Coasters playing the game and the West Coasters in well, the early and, 20th century. <laughs> and it was, and, and they were very different, even to the point they had different numbers, numbers of players on the court. But, you know, it's, oh, it's wow. funny. One of the things that uh, when I got involved with the, uh, the organization in, the, um, in 2007, mm-hmm. um, some headway had been, some recent headway had been made. My predecessor um, in the role of CEO was a fellow named Fred Nykamp, mm-hmm. who, had, uh, who had decamped um, to the Canadian Soccer Association but one thing he did and pushed through quite successfully was and 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 did it um, uh, directly and and in some people's minds harshly but it was I think it was the necessary thing to do was he introduced at the behest of FIBA FIBA rules across mm-hmm, the country mm-hmm. and standardizing. by the time standardizing by the yeah. time I came in there were only three jurisdictions in the country that didn't play FIBA rules and so I mean each each successive sort of um, era in Canada basketball or or its predecessor organization um, kind of established a new foundation and I think what we've been able to do over the last decade is from that foundation of greater commonality in terms of rule sets and so on we've been able to develop athletes officials coaches to a level that has never been seen before Mm -hmm. in this country anyway and I think the evidence of that Mm -hmm. is is clearly apparent on the international scene and and perhaps never more so than the than the month of July this year when we won two world championship medals world cup medals and in the previous um, in the previous 971 months we'd won six and yeah, we won two yeah, in July yeah, and yeah. that was um, and that was a, a tremendous achievement to have the best under 19 team in the world in terms of men huge to have the to have the bronze the third best team in terms of women but both from the same country um, are, is just an amazing accomplishment and it's 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 a dedication to the the current CEO at Canada Basketball, Michelle mm-hmm. O'Keefe, and her team, uh, but so many people that have been involved for so long, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and and so many athletes, so many coaches, so many officials, um, and I mean, I just I every day, I mean, I kind of take my hat off to the the quality of people who've invested themselves in this game, and again, that's basketball. All of the other sports in this country have have stories that have some yeah, yeah. some vein of similarity to that in terms of the dedication of the volunteers, right, yeah. and it's a wonderful thing actually. You mentioned the growth in the game as well, and I think one thing you mentioned there was how great we're doing now. Yes. And I guess when I was growing up, Steve Nash was a big influence, and do you think that's almost a result of that sort of era? How these players now and how basketball has grown, and almost what it's going to say for basketball going forward? It's interesting, Christian, because I think there has to be you know. For a for one of the challenges, and it is because it is a very much a sports focused country. There's a lot of demands on on young athletes and young families who have who have young athletes, be they boys or girls. Yep. And so the 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 challenge ten, fifteen, twenty years ago was to was to find 
the athletes at the right age, the young athletes at the right age, and get them funneled into basketball. Mm-hmm. What Steve Nash did, and or what Steve Nash's um, uh, uh, growing legacy from 2000 onward did, right. but also what Vince Carter's did, what the Grizzlies and the Raptors mm-hmm. coming into the NBA in 1995 mm-hmm. did, was it exposed kids to a different possibility, mm-hmm. exposed them to a possibility that wasn't hockey, beyond and hockey, wasn't exactly. football, baseball, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't just hockey. And, and to be able to see up close and personal 82 nights uh, a year on, tele, on local television, the Grizzlies in the case of Vancouver, the Raptors in the case of Toronto, and mm-hmm. then across the nation, um, that sort of, I mean, brought this home. And I think it really, so I think it was Steve's work. I think it was Vince Carter. I mean, I, I do believe that Vince deserves quite a bit of credit as well because he, he really, especially for certain communities in the GTA, I mean, he galvanized interest in the sport mm-hmm. in a way that had, had never been galvanized before. And, and, that's, and to, to, to both of them, I mean, Steve's incredible. Um, but I think sometimes Vince gets a little bit overlooked. But I think to Especially them, in the Toronto. Like his yeah, to the, the entire legacy. Much maligned yeah. figure. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Because of the way it ended, right? Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. I, you know, I don't think any Toronto basketball fan uh, can disagree with the point you make that as a symbol, Right, he was he was the first superstar yeah. to play basketball in Canada. I mean, I I loved Damon Stoudemire. Yeah. I loved uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim, yeah. uh, Doug Christie. They they were stars. Yeah. But when Vince Carter landed, yeah, it it was pandemonium. Yeah. And um, you know, you hear Corey Joseph talk about it. I mean, even now with Toronto FC, uh, I coach competitive soccer yes. at the youth level. And I'm seeing the young people that I work with put themselves on the field when they're watching Toronto FC. Yes. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, and and that's such a powerful force. So you know, you're right. Vince gets overlooked sometimes because of the way that things ended. Yeah. But uh, a huge legacy, obviously, for professional basketball. Yeah. As a young kid, you know, you have to be able to. I think at some level, you have in, in some way you have to be able to visualize what it is you want to become. Exactly. Um, and. And when you when you're able to visualize that up close and personal through a t- through a TV screen or a, or a or a, a a mobile screen, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it it's a big it's a very different thing than you know the way it was 30 or when I was growing up in Vancouver. I mean, picking up the paper and trying desperately to find a line score on the Seattle <laughs> SuperSonics game the night before to the see Seattle if Bob Rule got game. see if Bob Rule got 20 points in the Vancouver Sun because there was no NBA in Canada and people didn't care about basketball. It was hard yeah. to find even that. And so it just seems so distant. I mean, that's what makes Steve's story actually, uh, actually really inc- one of the things that makes Steve's story unique and incredible. Because, you know, he grew up twenty years after I did, but he, but he he did so in an era that hadn't quite hadn't yeah. qu- was somewhere between yep kept not being able to find Bob Rule's name in the line score to you know what it is today when yep. you've got all games on television, and and he grew up in that era, and yet he was able to develop that understanding and that 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 visual realization of what he could do and what could be accomplished and i mean his his sense of perseverance determination and every is is legendary as everyone knows but he was a special canadian athlete absolutely absolutely
Um, we, sorry, Christian, did you have? No, no I was going to mention, I know you said that Steve Nash and I guess that era was more about exposure, I guess, to the game for a lot yeah. of Canadians. I guess now is it a little bit more about retaining this talent and sort of keeping it in Canada? Or is it for you not a problem you know, with sending players to the U.S.? And as long as they grow, it, it's so a good thing. As an organization, and I'll speak both as an organization and, and then personally based on my, my sense and insights over the last number of years. But as an organization, we have, we have to be very honest, and frank, we have vacillated on what the right approach to the development of athletes is. When I came into the organization, um, there was a, a bias against kids going to the U.S. And in mm-hmm. that point in time, 10 years ago, it was almost exclusively guys. Now there's yeah. women, young girls who are going to the U.S. to play high school ball right. as well. But going to the U.S. to play high school is what, I, prep. what I meant to say, yeah. play, play prep. And, and, and it, was, it was based on... Um, some bad experiences and some bad advice and mm. and and some guys who went down there and didn't find themselves in the best situation and mm. and somehow their ultimate potential seemed to disappear on them and I yeah. think we all know um, the names of some of those individuals many of yeah. them are still around the GTA yeah. and yeah. you always yeah. think what you know what whatever could have happened been. yeah been. whatever yeah. happened to yeah. him what could yeah. have been but you know so one of the things that was incumbent upon uh, the national governing body and the and the provincial associations to do, I think, was to establish alternatives to that okay. in the Canadian context, mm-hmm. but then to also mm-hmm. try and work with and guide the athletes in terms of the the different choices they could make if they if they were insistent on going to the U.S. because. You know, a lot of it. A lot of it in those early years. It was just they didn't. They didn't know enough. There wasn't enough information. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in Canada, we we established, and they were fairly short lived because the government funding run it ran out. But we established two uh, as We called them National Elite Development Academy. They were based at McMaster University, and they, mm-hmm. and they really. Um, ushered in an era where we began to understand the potential of the young athletes. Yeah. Kelly Alinek was part of that group. Really? Natalia Chan was part of that okay, group, okay. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, but there are many models, and there are many models that can be successful. Um, you know, you look at what's going gone on in Orangeville over the last few years. You look at yep. You look at some of the things that are being done out in British Columbia. You look at what you know Dave Smart has been able to do with the young, uh, with the the youth teams and the youth program in Ottawa. There's many models that can be successful. The key, and I think, is that one has to one has to take an approach that is centered around the athlete and the mm-hmm. athlete's development. And one of the things that was missing, and it wasn't through uh, poor intentions, I don't think. I think it was just a lack of knowledge. One of the things that was missing a decade ago was an under, was, a, was a real deep um, understanding integrated into the coaching philosophy of what you were really there to do. Mm-hmm. And at the youth level, I think what you're really there to do primarily is to develop, develop. that athlete and that person. Um, and I, I've got to give a nod to uh, the fed, federal government uh, and, and Sport Canada because um, they had some smart people 20 years ago who began to think about this and eventually established a long-term athlete development program mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then made it incumbent upon each of the sports to develop their own specific, specific program around LA, L, LTAD. 
And that, you know, things like periodization of training, things like game to practice ratios and so on, like it doesn't help any athlete, be they someone like me who's going to play the game recreationally at the age of 25 or somebody like Tyler Ennis who's going to be drafted into the NBA at, at 19. It doesn't help them to to go out and play six games every weekend and have yeah, two practices right. during yeah. the week. It hurts them, and it hurts them badly. It right. hurts their development, and they just. Yep. And I think, and I think, what's as as we've come of age as a basketball nation, I think our our level of understanding, intelligence, coherence around mm-hmm. philosophy and coaching um, has just has just grown exponentially, and and that really is. I think you know the, the 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 talent, the raw talent, has been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why we've begun in the last five years, especially, to reap the the benefit of that talent as it as it matures to the to the senior prep or senior high school, and then college, and then pro, and then national team levels. Right, because I was wondered at the collegiate level, anyways, if it was really organic that you'd see a lot of Canadian players on one team, like a Gonzago, or is that sort of guided? sort of from the top from from you guys down and you guys have connections with USA schools to be honest that in those years Christian in those early years and you often did see that it was more the other way around well it sorry I shouldn't say that it was perhaps one individual in Canada who had a contact in the Mm -hmm. U.S. and because there wasn't there weren't the the exposure opportunities the AAU wasn't nearly as big in this country at that point in time there weren't the exposure opportunities so you know as a favor make a call to a coach I knew in Western Kentucky, Western Kentucky and he'd do me a big favor and allow my guy to walk on yeah. or yeah. maybe get a, you know, a, a very partial scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. And so those, but gradually those, you know, those channels began to, as they saw what, what athletes could do, those channels began to develop. The up. other thing that happened is that, a, you know, a deck between 10 and 20 years ago, athletes who went to the U.S., to, to colleges in the U.S., whether they were athletes like that or um, uh, Levon Kendall, who went to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, higher-profile athletes that were recruited heavily, they tended to sit on the bench in mm-hmm. when they got to schools in the U.S. Um, and they were they were not usually even sixth and seventh; they were eighth, ninth, tenth guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly that was um, uh, d- that was that that um, came from the fact that they hadn't had the 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 number of exposures, number of games, number yeah. of, you know they didn't have the de- depth yeah. of experience their yeah. American counterparts have, but partly be- it was because the coaches just didn't understand what this somewhat raw athlete right. could do. It's sort of like it, baseball went through exactly the same thing where, you know, because the the season was so short, the outdoor season was so relatively short in Canada compared to California and Texas mm-hmm. and, and Florida. They, you know, they just didn't have the reps, you know, the the at bats, the, right. the innings, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's it's taken a lot of people to create the programs in Canada. And so it's the understanding, the knowledge, but it's also the programs that that can give these athletes the opportunities, the reps, the the, the, the right. situations that they need to develop. Awesome. So, just building off what you're you're saying here. Uh, how the system has evolved uh, in the ways that you've described to uh, make the most of the talent that exists in Canada. Yes. Um, have we arrived yet on the international basketball stage? 
it, and I know that's a, that's yeah. a, you good, know subjective. It's good, yeah, it's a good question. I, we are arriving. We are arriving. We are in the process of arriving. We have not arrived, and I say that. Um, I mean, I there's perhaps my favorite my favorite story in all of this is um, is I go back to a a night um, or an afternoon, I should say, in 2008. Um, the situation was kind of dark for our senior men's team. We had gone to Athens. Mm. In a qualifier, um, Sam Dallenbar uh, wound up um, in a tiff with uh, with our head coach. I, I remember and, that. Um, yes, we didn't qualify, and that was a that was a severe blow. That was the first men's competition after I came into the organization. Right. Um, and but we had scheduled. I I had worked with uh, my my U.S. counterpart uh, Jim Tooley to um, to to have an exhibition game in Las Vegas that would pay us some money, which was good for us, and and would give them some tune up on the way to some the Olympics time. in Beijing. And we had hoped that we would have qualified, so it would have given us a tune up too. So we we played them at uh, Thomas Mack Center in Las Vegas, and and I remember about um, halfway through the third quarter, and I was standing down by myself on the um, uh, at one end at one end under the basket, and. Uh, and I'm just standing there looking up at the scoreboard and, you know, we've only lost three days earlier, been eliminated from Olympic competition and we're all kind of down and so on. And and I come up and I'm standing there looking at the scoreboard and it's pretty bleak. I mean, it's only an exhibition game, right? right. But it's still mm-hmm, pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jermaine Anderson is on the way, his way to a 20-point game, which is wonderful. But and I, and I feel this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around. It's Jerry Colangelo, and Jerry Colangelo huh. was running was my equivalent, but of course a much, much greater, uh, much greater uh, persona in basketball was right. running USA basketball yeah. at the time. And um, and we had spoken earlier, um, and I'd introduced myself, and we had a great chat. But he he tapped me on the shoulder, and he just looked at me, and and he looked out on the floor, and he looked back at me, and he said, "I envy you." Mm. And I looked back at him and I said, <laughs> and I looked up at the scoreboard and I can't remember. It was a midway through or late in the third quarter. I always remember the final score of the game was 120 to 65. So they I'm guessing for them. By 55. <laughs> yes. And it was probably at this point, I mean, we had closed to maybe 15 or 18 early in the third quarter. Yep. And then they'd gone on a 10 or 12 0 run or something. And so it was probably 25 or 30 points. And I just looked at Jerry. I looked up. He had looked at this thing to me. I looked up at the scoreboard. I looked at him. I looked at the scoreboard. I looked at him and I said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, his, and remember, so that's 08. So his son, Brian, had come up to Toronto to mm. run the Raptors yep. a year and a half earlier, two years earlier. And, and Brian had sort of brought him abreast of by just hanging out in gyms around yep. GTA and that had brought him abreast of the level of talent and the sort of the different ethnic strains that mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. that were appearing on courts in in um, in the GTA and across the country, yep. and and he and so he had advanced knowledge. Plus, at that point in time, we had a, um, um, a <laughs> later that same that same fall. I went to uh, Beaverton, Oregon, to the Nike campus, and I had a guy tell me that we had the best eleven-year-old in the world. It was Andrew Wiggins, ah. um, and Nike was tracking them as young as eleven at that point, as the best wow. eleven-year-old in the world. But but also, I mean, Jerry knew about Andrew, and um, and so he said, "I envy you." He said, "You've got so m- in your program, you've got so much potential in front of you. Mm. You've got so much ahead of you." And he right. said, "One of these days, I know you're not going to be in Beijing, but one of these days, you're going to be there playing against us on that Olympic floor." And I always remember that because mm. there was there was so much potential, but now. 
I think we've, so to your question, long-winded answer to your question of have we arrived, we haven't arrived, but we're in the process of arriving. What, what heartens me more than anything, I think, is on both the men's side and the women's side, the, the, the crop of young talent that is continuing to come up mm-hmm. from, from, you know, age 8, 10 to 10, 12, to 12 to 15, to 15 to 18, et cetera, and you saw it on the floor in Cairo, yeah. and you saw it on the floor with the women a couple of weeks ago, um, it's just it's just inspiring as anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we can have an Anthony Bennett who goes one overall and is now unfortunately kind of derided in some quarters as the biggest bust of a number one overall choice. Why? But the reality is, that, I mean, and Anthony is a story unto himself and a tremendous guy and, and, and a tremendous basketball player, whether he makes it back to the NBA or not. But, you know, we're going to have other number one draft choices. We're probably going to wow. have one yeah. with RJ in a couple of years. And you know, and the the level of talent and the 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 breadth of that talent is what's really inspiring at this point. I mean, if we can continue to grow the number of players we have in the in the in the NBA and the WNBA, but especially in Euro Euroleague for women, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. then you know that's that really is the culmination. When I would say, Greg, in in final answer to your question. Um, I would hope the moment that we arrive is um, somewhere around the final two days of each basketball competition in Tokyo mm. in 2020. 2020, marking it down. <laughs> you, you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. You heard it here first. Um, y- you had mentioned a name there, uh, Barrett. Uh, for those who don't know, this is a young man uh, with a lot uh, of upside, um, his father also played for his Canada. Father played very, very, had a very distinguished career for Canada, very distinguished career in France and mm-hmm. as well. Um, and Rowan Barrett, uh, his dad, Rowan Barrett, uh, is uh, we also a tremendous debt of gratitude for when uh, when I went out and asked Steve Nash to become general mas- manager of the um, of the our, our senior men's program. Uh, four or five years ago, um, the Steve was still playing in the NBA at the time, and we knew that he would contribute a tremendous amount. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of day-to-day work to be done, and 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 Steve's choice and ultimately ours for that was his best buddy from the Olympic team of mm-hmm. 2000 and through that era, and that's did, Rowan Barrett. Who did well? I, I'm rem- w- they, did they win a tournament? They, they got- So they made it to the Olympics in 2000, yes. and they went to the quarters, and okay, they Yugoslavia. They lost wow. the quarters, heartbreaking loss to France by four or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that run that they had, you guys are all too young to remember, but that run that they had for about 10 days from the first game they beat Yugoslavia in that mm-hmm. tournament, uh, the old Yugoslavia, that run they had had them on the front page of all the papers. But there were still newspapers in those days. That's That's right. All of the newspapers across the country for a good ten days, mm-hmm. and, and that 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 was the first, uh, you know, other than '76 when our men finished fourth in the in the, in the Montreal Olympics. Um, that was the most significant. That is the most significant Olympic run we've had, uh, unless you go all the way back to 1936. But, but at any rate, so Rowan and Steve were the. Steve was the heart, and Rowan was the soul of that team. 
Um, and so when RJ was born, Steve is RJ's, uh, Steve yeah. Nash is RJ Barrett's godfather. godfather. Um, and it, so Rowan came on board five years ago as Steve's assistant general manager and retains that position today and has been tremendous, has been, has contributed tremendously to the, to the program. Um, you know, I mentioned the National Elite Development Academy a few minutes ago, but we've done a number of other things as an organization. And the Junior Academy that, that we established at Rowan and Steve's direction uh, three or four years ago has, mm -hmm. has, made tremendous, has made a tremendous impact on developing the skill sets of our, of our, of our elite young players. Um, but so back to RJ. So, you know, RJ comes from wonderful genes. Um, and, and a wonderful heritage. Um, his dad played in France for a decade um, and, um, and, and, and taught him the game, and he has developed tremendously. Um, he reclassified last week his, his graduating year, big news, anticipated news, but big news. And he will, I mean, you know, you never, never one never knows for certain, but in our view and, and in the view of a lot of the scouts, the NBA general managers and scouts and so on, he is the odds-on favorite to be the number one choice in 2019, following one more year of high school and one year of college. Um, and his game, if you had the opportunity to see any of the games, especially the game against the U.S. in the World Juniors, um, his game is a is a is a many-faceted game, and um, and and he has tremendous. Could you describe potential. it? Could you just be because I personally I, I I have heard about him. I have not qualitatively got to see the young man play yet. He is um, he is a he is a tour de force. I mean he's a, he's a, a tour force, de force. He's a tour de I force. love he's that a force of nature. <laughs> um, he can rebound. He has he has quickness. He has agility. He he leaps out of the gym. Um, he shoots better and better. Mm. Um, I mean, as most young guys, there is work to be done on uh, on the shot, especially. But but he is just he's he's just his all round game is mm. is phenomenal. Um, he sees the floor incredibly well. Um, and for uh, for I mean, he's gonna he's gonna be a wing, a three or a four, and you know he sees the floor incredibly well. Um, he's just got a vision for the game that. Um, you know, we always uh, attribute to a Wayne Gretzky in in hockey or a Steve Nash mm -hmm. in That's basketball. That sense, and, and there cerebral. is a, yeah, as to where as to where everybody is, especially yeah. where his guys are on the floor yeah. at a point in time. And you know, he's only going to get more dangerous, I think, as as he develops. Um, and and so, you know, but but he's he's the he he's the uh, the, the leading light. But there are you know that team that played in uh, in Cairo and did so well. I mean, there's there's five other guys on that team who have who have significant NBA potential, um, and it's just wonderful to see. And then you look at the guys in between that group and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the Tristans and and Kelly Olynyk and, mm -hmm. and those guys today and. You know, guys like Jamal Murray and that. Jamal and, Murray, yeah. Just so much, so much potential there. The, the nice thing is too that you know there was a point in time where we were not, you know, after Steve, where we didn't really develop point guard. We weren't able to develop point guards um, that that had the same potential as as our as some of our bigs. Um, and now we just we have been able to develop so many point guards. I mean, I mentioned Jermaine Anderson, who's a who was a tremendously under. Um, celebrated, but a tremendous asset for Canada. But there was an era where he was the only point guard, and, mm -hmm. and he was a, he was a two really, but he was the only guy in the country who could play, mm -hmm. keep mm -hmm. up with mm -hmm. the guys and play defense at the international level. And so he played point for us and, 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 and did distinguish himself very well. But 
you know, it wasn't a time where we had a lot of horses to put around mm-hmm. him. Um, but, you know, you go from a, a situation where for for the years that, you know, you guys were forced first witness the game, Canada had two guys in the NBA. There was Steve and there was Jamal. Yep. Right. McGlore. The big cat. Uh, and the big cat. <laughs> and, and, you know, today, uh, for the last three years, we've had the most NBA players of any nation other Outside than the, the U.S. US. Tremendous. Um, and I think we'll have the same, you know, if things break the right way, yeah. I think the same will be true this fall. Um, we've gone from, you know, in the last uh, five years, uh, you know, we, we've now had 34 guys who've played in the league. And, um, you know, wow. I think that was 17 or 16 or something like that over right. the first 50 years. So, you know, we've got, and then the women's side, the same thing is true. We don't have as many players in the WNBA, but there's, when you look at the level of players playing in, in Europe, and you look at the caliber mm-hmm, of players mm-hmm. that that we had on the floor two weeks ago at the World Juniors, you know, it's the 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 future is every bit as bright there. Our women's program, uh, uh, in the same way that Rowan has Steve and Maurizio uh, mm-hmm. Maurizio Giardini have run our men's program, um, uh, Denise Dignard and and Allison McNeil and and now Lisa Tomitis as coach, have developed a tremendous program on the women's side and. You know, it, it actually, it, it, it success actually predated the men. I mean, we made London mm-hmm. when no one expected us to. We finished eighth in London. Um, we finished fifth at the World Championships in 14. Um, we we made it to the quarters in, in Rio last year and, and then lost to, to France, which we always seem to do That's until we beat the them crux. in the World Juniors a month ago. But, um, you know, but we, so we took a, perhaps not, didn't have as great a success in Rio with the women as we hoped. But we have so much, so much hope and so potential. much potential yep. for the next World Cup um, and and for the Olympics in 2020. So when I did say about the Olympics in 2020, it isn't just about the guys and what they'll hopefully be doing mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. two or three days mm-hmm. of the basketball competition. It's about the women, the women as, well. as well. Also about the women's yeah. game. Yeah, fantastic. So, just before closing here, you know, this is again, uh, we explained this earlier. We started this podcast. You know, we're basketball fans, huge Toronto Raptors fans, grew up loving the sport, turned on our, our our local sports news, couldn't, you know, it was all hockey, you go to the American channels, it's nothing about the Raptors, they might as well not even exist. This is, of course, primarily by watching Pardon the Interruption. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but we, nonetheless, are... I mean, this is what Brandon calls. He calls it a Homer podcast. Yeah. Because I will defend Masai Jiri until the day I die. I think you know. Good man. I think yeah. You know, uh, not just his his, and this is look my my perspective. Okay, but it's not just the basketball decisions. It's how he's conducted himself in the Toronto community. Yes, indeed. Right. Um. You know the the the, the African legends work. The Nelson Mandela day. Uh. I just think overall he's done a great job, but. I'm curious about what your thoughts are, are on how he's uh, how much of a linchpin he has been, if at all, in the last four seasons of Raptors success. Because there has been four, like these past four years as a Raptors fan, although people say championship or bust, I don't necessarily believe in that. I like just having a winning team. And I think he's been a big part of that. I have, I have, uh, and it's not just because we sit on the board of Canada Basketball together, but I have <laughs> oh, the, the deepest respect. Masai is on our he board. He is also yeah. on the board. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. I have the deepest respect for Masai and have ever since I met him a decade ago uh, in his early years in Toronto before mm-hmm. he went to mm-hmm. Denver. 
I mean, you know, what has been accomplished here over the last four years has has been exceptional and tremendous. And it, you know, it's a little, it's a, it's a little disappointing sometimes when you when you're on the inside of sport and you understand more of what goes on day to day and what the true challenges are, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and you see the way that that fans react negatively to things that go on. I mean, I, I, I think of the, the Blue Jays in the current context, you know, some, mm. of, the, some of the things you hear. Um, there's a lot of things that I think that the, the fans don't necessarily get or don't necessarily yeah. stop to think about. But How quick the, the switch flips. Well, yeah, and, and you know, there's, there's so, so the job, the, the I, I would put it this way, I guess. I think that, you know, the, Brian Colangelo, I, I think Brian deserves a lot of credit as well. Yep. Brian yep. allowed this franchise to turn a corner that was, you know, to to seasons of success, to yep. um, to you know more than you know to forty wins and high forties and wins and so on, um, and 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 it stopped being kind of the doormat or the laughing stock of the league when Brian when Brian came here and I think That's he deserves right. a lot of uh, a lot of credit for that. There are others that deserve credit as well, MLSC, some of the people at MLS, MLSC and so on. Mm-hmm. But I think Masai has picked uh, has picked uh, you know took the the momentum pass from yeah. from Brian in a in a in a very um, a very deliberate and a very elegant way. Um, and I, you know, I think the challenge, the challenge at this point for so many teams in the NBA, is is you know with what went on in Miami beginning in 2010, what went, what has gone on in the, the decision State in Cleveland, the decision and what has gone on in in uh, in in San Francisco and in and a little bit in Cleveland in terms of you know super super teams, the with super two or teams, three guys and you know. It makes it, it it makes it even a more interesting challenge in terms of what to do, and you know the the, the uh, you know there's there's decisions that you have to make, and you know if you think of a decision like the Damari Carroll decision, either the decision to sign him or mm-hmm, or, or mm-hmm. to eventually trade him, you know y- you make the very best decision you can at the time, and I would say the decisions that Masai has made, my sense of it, and I'm not. One 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 hundredth of the basketball brain that he is, but I would say that the decisions he's made in each moment have been stellar decisions. Not all of them have turned out. Not all of mine and all the things I've That's, done have yeah, turned out. Yeah. In fact, a lot of them haven't. You tend not to talk as much about the ones that haven't, but they oh. haven't. <laughs> um, but you know, so I I think he's, and I think, you know, I think w- the next year is going to be a very interesting one here because it's you know. You you've got it. You, there's a lot. There's a little bit of hope here in terms of the development of mm-hmm. uh, of a number of the guys who were that were building were a foundation, right? Supporting cast last year. Yeah, the youth yeah. players are going to take a yeah. step. Hopefully. And there's a, but but I think I think the organization is in tremendous hands. I think it's in a, it's got it's moving in a tremendous direction, both from a basketball sense and a business sense. I mean they've they've mm-hmm. done a tremendous mm-hmm. job on the business side, um, and um, and they they'll continue to do that. I think and. You know, there's only one. I mean, it's a cliche, but there's only one team that wins every year. You look at, you know, yeah. you look at, yeah. you look at the quality of individuals, and the the and the, and the quality of faith that 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 in San Antonio, yes, they won 60 games almost every year. But you know, the faith that that ownership group has shown in 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 Greg Popovich, mm-hmm. the the consistency, consistency, the support of the the ownership team in and Rick Welts in San Francisco um, you know you, you quality you, you need to put quality people in place 
very top down who are who are going to hire quality people right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that you need to let them make their decisions and some of those decisions are not going to turn out the right way it doesn't mean they were the wrong decision in my humble view and i think he is a i think he is 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 the linchpin if if you will of what's gone on in toronto um there are there are other very significant contributors but um his role has been um his role has been central and pivotal so are you then in because you know we had a little debate on the podcast a few uh, it's a few months ago now uh Brandon was painting the raptors uh at some sort of a crossroads and right and i took issue with well are we at a crossroads cuz people saying championship so, or bust do you I think, think that we made the right decisions retaining well i think i think i would say this greg i i think i think any I think in the way sport has gone, and I would mm-hmm, say this applies mm-hmm. to all four major professional sports, uh, professional team sports in North America, and it probably applies to soccer in the European context as well. The way sport has gone today is you need to be able to um, understand and project the ebb and flow of teams um, and success mm. from a business perspective and from a from a uh, from a team perspective, and so you know. There is a and and the I use the Blue Jay example again. I mean, mm-hmm. how many endless debates did we hear on primetime sports or every other the Blair Show everything for three months after they went out went out of the gate one and nine? How okay they got to blow it up yeah. uh, before the trade yeah. line. Yeah. Well, they don't have to blow it up. They have to blow it up. They don't have to blow it up. The reality is, you know, the dollars that are paid to Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins mm-hmm. and. Um, and, and Bobby Webster and Masai Ujiri are in part for being able to read, read that that very subtle shift in team dynamic and momentum. So back to mm. the question you asked, I think they're they're not at what I would say a fundamental crossroads. I think they are at an intersection ah. where they can go where they can go one way or another. And I think I think probably I think probably Masai. You, you recall the comment that Masai made a couple of days after the end of the season, where he the talked culture. about a cultural reset. Yeah. Yep. And people, people took that to mean something to mean a crossroads, like a fundamental thing. We got to change the character, and he's explained that a few times mm-hmm. since, and I think he's explained it quite effectively. But I think the reality is, I mean, for, you know, in the in the the terror of that loss to Cleveland and the, af- the immediate aftermath, you're just feeling devastated. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we've gone from here last year to winning two games to here this yeah, year, just, yeah, being, yeah. just right. being pummeled. And so, you know, but yeah. you, you know, when you take a step back, yeah. 24, 48, 30, you know, 48, 72 hours later, and then a week or two weeks later, you know, you start to think, okay, so, okay, so what if we don't resign Kyle? What do we then do what? with point guard? Yeah. And, and it the becomes, options? and it becomes, and you know the salary, the salary cap, and the, you know, I mean, I was very disappointed from a personal perspective and from a Canada basketball perspective to see, to see Corey go to Indiana, but understood, yeah. the, understood yeah. the dynamic of that yeah. from a from a salary cap standpoint. So the challenges that you have are very nuanced and very. So I think they're at an intersection, and I think they've made. I think they. My sense is they've made very good calls this off season, and I think it could go 
It could veer left. It could veer right. It could veer. It could continue down. They could win another 51 games next year. You know, mm. ESPN released their pro, uh, projections last week and had them sixth. sixth. Right? Yeah. But the difference between third and sixth is uh, maybe it's seven or eight wins. I suspect they'll be closer to 51 than they will be to 43. Mm. Um, but but who knows? And and in this game, more so than or maybe more so than any except football, if you lose a quarterback. But yep. you know, in this game, I'm w- one injury kind of yep. can can yep. can scuttle change you. everything. We'll uh, look at. Lowry last year. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. So uh, you know, I, I but it, but it really is about it. Really is about somehow. Same with the Jays in this moment. It really is about trying to maintain that winning atmosphere. That and 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 winning while trying to rebuild from underneath. And I and I don't I don't actually subscribe to the theory that many have, and many that are much more knowledgeable than my than me. I don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that it's all it's one or the other that you have to tear down or. Or 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 go for it all. Yeah. I think you have to be. I think you you need as a as a manager in sport today. You need a tremendous dexterity in being able to kind of play with both of those concepts, keep both those concepts in your brain, and work with them simultaneously. And so you you give a little here, you take a little mm-hmm. more there, you give a little here, and and I think. I think that's what the Jays are doing in the process of doing. I think that's what the Raptors are in the process of doing. The Leafs are still on that, you know, that transcendency. But there may be a point two years from now when they have to make a decision around yep, exactly. Marner and and Nylander uh, and and, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and you know they've signed Matthews, but where they'll be in the same situation. And I think really that that skill set, the ability to manage those two kind of countervailing notions in your brain at the same time and understand all of the other parameters around the league and every player and every mm-hmm. possibility and every nuance of the salary mm-hmm. cap and the and uh, in all four leagues I think that's what that's the art of and the science but especially the art of being a of a super successful team manager and when you look at the guys that all of us would have we could we could uh, do a secret ballot here, and I suspect that there'd be three or four guys across all of sport, the the 132 teams in major professional sport in North America that would be on that list. And and a guy like Greg Popovich is one of those guys, and and you know, and there's there are others too. But um, that's where you know, and that's what Masai is trying to do. And I think he's going. I think he's on. I think he's well on the way to being successful to the point that over a 10-year period. This team will have won more games than any team in the Eastern Conference, perhaps even including Cleveland. When you mm-hmm. think about that, we don't know what's probably gonna, yep. may well not be there two years from now, right. et cetera, et cetera. And that consistency, you know, that yeah. consistent. You look at what San Antonio has done; they've won five times, yeah. but they've also won sixty games another mm-hmm. twelve, fourteen times over the last twenty years. They are there, so that if things align, they could be the team. Mm-hmm. They weren't the team this past year because Golden State was simply. Too great. Yep. But and Kawhi goes year, down. And Kawhi goes down. But next but they year, were there. two right years, there. three years, yeah. you know, hope they can attract the free agents and exactly. they have the winning culture. Exactly. Yeah. One hundred percent. So, Wayne, we you know we don't want to keep you too long here. Uh, for those that want to hear probably the most elegant breakdown I've ever heard about how to straddle the business and team dynamics of professional sport, I would listen to the last 10 minutes of what Mr. Parrish just said. Uh, truly uh, sort of an ingenious look at the nuances that, that, I mean, we try to get at them in this podcast, but I mean, with your experience, it's just been fascinating uh, to hear. Thank you so much. 
Greg, for, for this opportunity. Brandon, it was it was a pleasure, and uh, I'd uh, I'd be delighted to uh, to be back uh, uh, whenever whenever the occasion calls. That was fun. We'd love to have you. want to give a special thanks to Wayne Parrish for joining us today on the podcast. Um, hopefully he'll be joining us again later down the road. Uh, just an excellent opportunity to speak with an you know, incredible mind when it comes to Canada basketball. Anything else you want to add, buddy? Uh, you know, it's always great to, to meet people that are so clearly more knowledgeable than you on a particular topic, but are... <laughs> still very humble and engaging uh, in the same way, in the way that you can then have a conversation with them. Uh, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot uh, from, from Mr. Parrish, and, I, and I, I hope we get a chance to interview him again soon, because I, to be honest, I have more questions that I wanted to ask him. I just you know, know that uh, he's an important man, and he probably has things to do. <laughs> unlike, unlike us here, <laughs> Christian. Doing the second half of the podcast. All right, guys, getting back to the point. Uh, the biggest, I guess, topic we can talk about this week uh, is the potential re-signing of Andrew Wiggins to the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's looking at a $150 million max contract. Christian, is Andrew Wiggins deserving of a max contract? What is his ceiling, and how does he kind of fit into the long-term plans of the Minnesota Timberwolves? I think uh, for Minnesota, um, with what they have now, especially with Jimmy Butler there and Carl Anthony Towns, uh, yeah, I think he is. In the NBA this day, these days, with the way that the salary cap is constructed and you expect to go up year over year, you can afford to have more than one max contract player on your team so it's not almost it's not really the end of the world that they would give him 150 million mm-hmm. um, I think he's shown loyalty to, to the Timberwolves I think uh, you know one of the things they want to do is do a little interview with him beforehand and just make sure that he's sort of committed and I think that's great I think it's exactly what they almost did with Kyrie before he decided to make his extension uh, with Cleveland and it's one of those things where Andrew Wiggins is comfortable there. He likes the team. He likes to be sort of, you know, growing and be not just the man, but have a team that sort of was nothing before he got there. So for me, as, a, as an organization for the Timberwolves, it's a great sort of deal. I would do it in a heartbeat because um, you can still retain and build around that. Uh, you still have to have one superstar type of talent. Mm-hmm. And I think Andrew Wiggins is that type of person. No, that's a great point. Um, you know, obviously he has deficiencies as a basketball player. You know, he is an incredibly athletic, long, um, you know, an incredibly talented player. Um, you clearly some is- see some issues last year, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But you're right. Andrew Wiggins is one of those kind of transcendent talents that, you know, could develop into a top five player in the league realistically moving down the road. Uh, Greg, how do you feel about this re-signing? What do you think Andrew Wiggins' ceiling is as a basketball player? And how does he fit into the Minnesota Timberwolves offense, considering they did bring in Jimmy Butler? What sort of numbers is he going to put up next year? I can't tell you exactly what kind of numbers he's going to put up next year because of the fluctuation that has occurred, mm-hmm. right? Especially with, with Butler getting there, there there might be a feeling out process. His numbers might not make the jumps that people might expect, though I think when we're talking about Wiggins, 
and upside, I still think he could be a top 10 NBA player. Yeah, you're talking about a guy who improved his three-point stroke from 5% from the season before. You know, he's a guy who's growing into his own. Clearly, defense is an issue, but he has but the is length, it though? as I mentioned before, to kind of but become is... a more calm to defender. He, he clearly had some issues last season as a defender, but what I'm trying to get at is that he has the physical mold to become a dominant yeah. shutdown defender. Is he? Yeah, so I think the, the concerning part to me about that is that Tom Thibodeau is his coach, and he hasn't taken the next step defensively and that was I think when he was first drafted a lot of the hype surrounding him was that he would be a two-way player and that he has the mentality the unselfishness to become a two-way player he was not some AAU baby uh, superstar talent that was just going to look to score like a J.R. Smith or something right. like this guy was going to play on both ends of the ball and he's got the wingspan and the athleticism and he comes from the right family and he's got the right attitude so then what's happening now I didn't see the Timberwolves play enough last year so I can't tell you is this an effort thing is it that he's just focusing on his scoring ability and not you know homing in defensively so I'm, it's going to be really curious for me what he looks like defensively next year. But is he a max contract player? I think, of course, he is. I think him and Towns together are the pillars of a championship contender. I think the acquisition of Jimmy Butler is only going to do great things for Andrew Wiggins. You're not only in practice of having someone that is you know, going to push him on a daily basis, but also being the third fiddle of the offense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just him kind of, you know, uh, just being able to take his time and just develop his niche on the offensive side of the ball and defensive Without side being of the ball as well. Without having to be, exactly. The expectation for him coming into the season that he's not the number one focal point of the offense. Clearly that's Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler. Andrew Wiggins in a situation similar to Clay Thompson where he can kind of grow into himself and define his own value within his own terms. Wait, but sense. wait, you think... See, I think he's he's still going to be the number one scorer on that team. I I think he will. I think he needs to be. I think because, Brandon, with your big man, you need him to give you... Like, you can't have a contender and not have a big man that gives you something else besides scoring. Mm-hmm. But for Wiggins, like, he, if anybody's going to be the scorer on that team, it's got to be Wiggins. Butler's got to give you the two-way game n- next year and the leadership... Um, but I I still want to see Wiggins be the number one scorer on that team. I think that's the model that will win them a championship. I just want to see a little bit more defensively. So keep in mind that it's it's an extension. It's a max extension, right? So it's a five year, hundred and forty eight million dollar offer, which is coming in at under thirty million dollars a year. It's less than so Lowry. yeah, and think and that's supposed to be a five year contract. So how good is that contract going to look in the third, fourth, yeah. and fifth year? And I think that's really what Fantastic. you heard that you heard that what the owner said today. Oh, well, he needs to improve. Like I want to make sure we had a face to face with with Wiggins or what, what exactly was right. Said there? So going to that though, so Timberwolves owner Glenn Taylor said Monday that he's ready to commit nearly. $150 million to Andrew Wiggins with a max level extension of his rookie contract. However, before he does that, Taylor wants to sit down face-to-face with Wiggins mm-hmm. to hear the former number mm-hmm. one overall pick commit to the franchise sort of in a similar fashion. What do you guys see in this? Like, Why do you think Taylor wants to sit down face-to-face with Wiggins? To What, what is he trying to accomplish by having this meeting? Well, it's, Amen. It seems like he wants him to, to basically commit to the fact that he will improve every single year mm-hmm. it's almost going to be a requirement in the contract apparently so it's it's a face-to-face based on the fact that you can you're 22 you're still very young you have lots of raw talent your ceiling is not even remotely close to being reached if i give you this money you can't just be complacent 
right. essentially is the way I see it. And it's almost like a, yeah, no, no shit, sort of, no yeah. duh, right? Like that's yeah. that's kind of the way it'll go with any contract extension. You're not giving somebody $150 million bef- and not look them in the eyes first and say, you going to play for me? Right. Right? And I think, you know, look, whether or not he improves the way that the organization wants him to or not, I think the point is, is that you want to make sure that, you know, we're giving you this money but it comes with expectations. Well, you also look at Kyrie Irving, for example. Um, you know, I think sitting down with Andrew Wiggins, uh, I think Taylor's trying to ensure that, you know, Wiggins is on board with being sort of a complimentary piece to a great ensemble. You put Kyrie yeah. Irving that wanted to be kind of, yeah. you know, wants to be the man, lead the Cleveland Cavaliers, and kind of, you know, um, create his own legacy, I guess, in the his folk, own terms. He wanted to you be know, the focal point. Exactly. I think Taylor's sitting down with Andrew Wiggins to ensure that we have Jimmy Butler, we brought in Teague, we have Jamal Crawford coming off the bench, we already have Currently Towns. I want to make sure that you're fine with the concept of you know team continuity as opposed to individual progression yeah, you know what i mean yeah but i think that's good i think you know what what we've i think learned in this whole cleveland saga was the importance of uh, and christian spoke to this several weeks ago you know the importance of your top down management and your owners like how are you relating to these guys right because in the case of irving if they had you know griffin there with his finger on the pulse Right? Maybe he doesn't walk. Right? What is your personal relationship like as an owner, as a team president with your players? Are do these guys want to play for you? How well do you know what's going on with them? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I, I ultimately think it, it's a good thing. If I was so lucky as to run an organization, I would want to have those, and that's why I support Phil Phil Jackson's uh, um, sort of public shaming of Porzingis. You go to the player exit meeting, young man. This is important. It's important that you touch base, that you look each other in the eyes, you know, that you shake hands, and that you actually—that's your chance to dialogue. Selflessness is a necessity in the NBA. You could read breaks of the game, one of the greatest basketball books of all time, and one of the big concepts that's kind of uh, mm-hmm. spoken in that book is just making sure there's no egos. You look at Red Auerbach and the Boston yeah, Celtics. We're a what team. made that team so good? There's no egos in the locker room. Everyone was working toward this one given goal. I think by Taylor sitting down, having this conversation with Wiggins, is just ensuring that you know, when it comes to the philosophy of progressing this organization and making them a championship contender, they're all on the same page. All right, guys, moving down the list. Um, so Carmelo Anthony, still currently a New York Nick. Multiple rumors are kind of circulating around him. One that kind of sprouted this week was a potential flip to the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh-huh. Christian, I'm going to throw this to you. Can the New Orleans Pelicans assemble some sort of package to get Carmelo Anthony, and how does he fit on that roster? I'm going to throw this one back to you guys and just, is Carmelo Anthony good enough to be worth talking about this much in the offseason? Mm. Like, is he that good? Is yes, he going to yes. change your role? I don't think have so. Have we got I to think, that point in his career where people don't I don't think he's anymore? that great anymore. He didn't look good this past year, man. I'll tell you that. Because just my quick opinion on New Orleans is I don't think he's going to waive his no trade clause to go to the Pelicans. So I don't think that's going to happen that's regardless. A, that's, that's, so for me, I, I just, I'm just so sick of this Carmelo Anthony talk almost. Like, it, is he that good of a player? Like, is he going to make a difference on OKC? He'll be the third best player. And on Houston, he'll be on. He'll be the third best player. On Cleveland, unless Kyrie's involved in the in the trade, he might even still be the third best See, player. I think, so what's what's the deal here? I think Carmelo Anthony at this point in his career is kind of realizing that you know, in order for him to maintain his legacy, i.e., winning a championship, he needs to utilize his skill sets that he has right now, and that's being a spot up shooter, second, third option on a team. You look at Carmelo Anthony's efficiency on Team USA. You know, as a complimentary piece to a team. You know, not running the offense, but being mm. a guy on the elbow, being a, a high efficiency scorer, that's what he needs to do. I'm not 
not quite sure if being on the Pelicans can kind of you know bring the best out of them. But being on a team with the Cleveland Cavaliers or even the Portland Trailblazers, where they can utilize what he's good at right now. Because you're right, he's not the dominant Carmelo Anthony that you know was with the Denver Nuggets you know, five, six years ago, but he's still a valuable commodity in the NBA. And you're talking about a third option on a championship caliber team. I think it's what Carmelo Anthony's sort of skill set would sort of like bring the table, if that makes so, sense. So like he, him on like Cleveland make a lot of sense to me. Someone who can like you know, dish him the ball, chilling at the elbow, being a high efficient scorer. I just think Carmelo Anthony is not going to be your focal point offensively, but as a complimentary piece, he's a great asset. So, sorry, so hold on. You threw back, Christian, the question after Brandon asked you, does he fit on the Pels? Yeah. Or do, do the Pels have the pieces to make the trade work? And then you threw back, well, why do we even care? Is he good enough? Uh, so to the first, I don't know if they have the pieces. It depends how desperate New York is. And I don't think he'd waive his no-trade clause because that team, it's not like you're going to a playoff team and you're going to get them over the hump. There's still a question there's mark. still some, some, some uh, X's and O's that needs to be sorted out there. I don't think he takes the risk. Okay, uh, And to the point, is Carmelo good enough? He, he's good enough that if he gets traded to the Rockets, they have the talent to beat Golden State. Like they're that like like they, that's a great team that he would. No, you know what I mean. Or OKC or honestly, you put because the brow and mellow on the same on the same team. And that's the most uncoachable team in NBA and history. They don't need to be coached. I'll coach them, boys. Pound the rock. Get it inside. Dunk. Wait, like, wait, wait, wait. They, Hold on those one boys, second. you put those three together on on the court, and don't tell me that they're not going to win fifty games. Well, so just to go off one of your points earlier, that the Carmelo Anthony's performance in in the Olympics and the USA and how he led the team in points and this and that. Keep in mind, DeAndre Jordan was there, getting every rebound from every shot he yeah, missed, he and he knew team. that he plays playing on a super team. Those stats are completely, to me, inflated. And if anything, they they're really inflated in his favor because it's his kind of game where he can shoot as many shots as he wants Doesn't and there's no defense. real repercussion. That's exactly. why he could gel in the Pelicans' offense. So you're talking about DeAndre Jordan being a high-efficiency offensive rebounder. you got Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins in the front Yo, court. Those three would, would, would... I would love... Here's why I would love to see them because you would have... You would be able to reverse small ball. You've got three guys that are oversized for their position. So instead of Melo playing a stretch four, he plays the small forward spot. Right and then, at, right then you got Rajon Rondo at the one, Holiday at the two. You're I would it, it's the counter to the modern NBA. I would actually like to see that tried. Right, flip the logic on its head a bit and just see if if you can put a team out there made to physically dominate the small ball teams. Whether or not that works and it all comes together is another thing. But I I I, I would like to see it. I don't think they have the pieces though. I see it more likely. He's going to Houston. I don't see any other... I mean, it's hard to say because sometimes these things, like the Paul George trade came out of nowhere. No one could predict it. But it, he, the only team he said he's willing to, tr- to to wave the no trade clause to go to is Houston. And they and have the assets to facilitate They have trade, to move... Right? Um, Ryan Anderson. Anderson. All right, guys. We are going to do a little bit of an Atlantic division preview right now for you guys. Here we go. started off Here with the go. Boston Celtics. So Boston Celtics Boo. in the offseason. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> 
Uh, the Celtics, this offseason, uh, I guess their biggest, splashiest move this offseason was the uh, the acquisition of Gordon Hayward to a four-year max contract. The team also <laughs> the flipped... Uh, the, the flashiest acquisition, <laughs> eh? Of Gordon, Gordon Hayward. Gord- the flashiest Gordon Hayward's ever been in his life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the team also flipped Avery Bradley to the Detroit Pistons for salary cap space, uh, bringing back a 2019 second-round pick, as well as Marcus Morris. The team also traded the number one overall pick, which is Markel Fultz, to the Philadelphia 76ers for their first round and third overall Jason Tatum and a conditional first rounder in 2018 or 2019. What do you make out of this team, Graffin? Uh, and where do you think the Boston Celtics will finish in this division? Um, so like I was saying, saying a little bit earlier on one of the podcasts, that I think the Boston Celtics are the only team in the top four in the East that have actually significantly improved this offseason. The Raptors, mm-hmm. the Wizards, and I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Cleveland, have all either stayed the same or sort of regressed a little bit. So for me, um, the, the team will be different. It'll take a little bit of time for them to gel, I think, like any team that adds a new superstar to it, especially when uh, Gordon Hayward, you'd, you'd imagine him to be able to fit into sort of any role in any team, especially with Brad Stevens as the coach. Uh, but I think it'll take some time for Boston to get up there. I still see them as winning 55 games. They won 53 last year, so I see it as a slight improvement. And really, it's taking advantage of the sort of the East. And everyone projects it to be a a weak East this year. Uh, Not a lot of wins. 50 wins might even get you first place. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I think Boston is sort of going to run away. And if Cleveland keeps Kyrie, those two teams, nothing will really change from the top two, I think, uh, based on last year. We got, you got to think about Danny Ainge and what he's trying to do with this organization. It's talking about accumulating assets. Um, you can even look at next year, for example. Not only do they have the Brooklyn Nets' first pick, depending on the Lakers do next year, they have the Lakers' first-round pick as well. And that pick is weird. So it's Lottie protected for number one overall and 6-30. You're talking about the Boston Celtics potentially next season getting two top five picks. You're talking about, what, DeAndre Aiden potentially, Luka Doncic, Michael Porter Jr., uh, this this team, like I, I hate to say this, but has such an incredible future. Like I'm a big Jason Tatum guy. I'm not massive on Gordon Hayward, but I do like the idea of them having a slow rebuild, but also being able to put out a competitive unit as well. It's a dream scenario for a lot of teams. Obviously, they're not winning the championship, but you're you're talking about a team that won the Eastern Conference that also managed to get the number three over pick in Jason Tatum. Also coming in next year, being able to potentially get two top five picks in a very deep draft class. Um, Greg, where are you sitting with the Boston Celtics? What they get fifty three last year, so I think they overachieved last year. They're not that good. Uh, I see them. Uh, so Hayward and Morris. Uh, Hayward, to me, is not as good as DeMar DeRozan. Uh, Morris is overrated. You also talked about Isaiah Thomas coming off a pretty bad hip injury as well, I think they're soft inside. Uh, They got Morris to shore that up a bit. I I, I think their front court is too weak. So I I don't... I mean, if if they do well, it'll be in the regular season. They're not going to beat... They're not going to make it to the finals. So... I'm thinking regular season. I see a regression to the mean a bit. Maybe they get a couple more wins because they've increased their talent. But with that also comes expectations. With that also comes teams being up for you. Like, teams weren't up for Boston last year. They weren't up for them. You know, Boston's in town. Okay, we could beat Boston. Now, oh, Boston's in town. We have to prep. So the teams are going to be coming at them a a little harder. Um, And they also have to gel. They have to... they. Changed their team significantly. They've lost their their best 
uh, defender in in Avery Bradley, at mm-hmm. least uh, a guard. You know, hopefully Marcus Smart can fill that void. That's a great point. Marcus yeah. Bradley was such a great player to play with yeah. Isaiah Thomas yeah. because he sort of, you know... You can make up for that defensive exactly, lack. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, and, and, and it's not that they don't have the depth to make up for that. They do, but it's that... So how, you know, how well will the team gel... So there's some question marks left for me. I, I'm I'm gonna put them with the same win total this year, 53. So keep in mind they went 30 and 11 last year at home. So if they go that damn leprechaun, if they finish first, which is obviously what they're going for, that's the that's a goal of theirs this year is to finish first again. Then in the playoffs they have home advantage all the way throughout. And you saw it helped against Washington. Every single team in that series, I'm pretty sure, ended up. You know what I mean? So it. it it, it matters. I don't know. I think that Boston's one of those teams where if they can find the whole goal for Boston will be to figure out how it all works and to gel so that by the time the playoffs come, they can actually, you know, hopefully take that next step. And the one thing about Boston I'll say is you mentioned all the draft picks. This is a team that can flip one of those picks at the trade deadline and get someone, you know, a rental player that could actually put well, them over the, the top. That's the craziest thing they're about gonna it. They're going to need to do Paul, that. They're going to need to do that. Look at Paul George. But they, you know? they're very likely to. Paul, Paul George went to OKC for what Sabonis and Victor Oladipo. I'm just trying to figure out what the Boston Celtics put together as a package and why they couldn't bring Paul George in the fold. I just don't understand why he's on a Boston Celtic. You know, in consideration of how many assets they have, like you're mentioning before. All right, guys, moving down the list. Um, I think one of the bigger issues a lot of teams are having right now is dealing with the salary cap restraints. I think many people have the expectation, especially coming this season, that the salary cap keep growing and growing and growing and growing. It, it, it destabilized. It actually went down this season. You look at a team like the Portland Trailblazers, who signed guys like um, Evan Turner, Michael Cobb, <laughs> to these massive contracts last season, thinking that the salary cap would keep growing. But unfortunately, they're stuck in a situation where they have to offload salaries and lose a guy like Alan yeah. Crabb for next to nothing. Similar situation, in my opinion, with the Washington Wizards coming into this season. You're talking about signing Otto Porter Jr. to a four-year, $106.5 million contract. You're also talking about bringing back John Wall on a max contract, a four-year, $170 million. You're also talking about Bradley Beal making roughly $25 million for the next four seasons. You know, these are three fantastic basketball players, but my concern with them is just depth. You could look at them last season, and they had no, no benefit option whatsoever and I understand the fact they brought in some pretty decent guys specifically uh, sorry what's his name Tim Frazier yeah, from the to New fill Orleans that Pelicans you got Mike Scott and Jody Meeks as well where are you guys with the Washington Wizards do you think they kind of handicap their future or do you think they have a bright upside I guess of John Wall Bradley Beal Otto Porter potentially being able to take that next step I don't I don't think that group doesn't have uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is just my experience watching them Great talent, mm-hmm. uh, super, superstar talent in John Wall, a star level talent uh, in, in Bradley Beal, who is an underrated player, a uh, great competitor. Otto Porter, I think they they overpaid for him. Look, that team doesn't look like they have a lot of togetherness and joy when they play. They don't. I I don't know if what what they have now is enough to put them. In the, I think I, I see them finishing fourth. How many wins did they get last year? 48, 47? 49. 49. You know, maybe they hit 50 this year. They should hit 50. But I, I'm i not with the Mike Wilbons of the world, with pardon the interruption, <laughs> that, that, that thinks John Wall is the second coming of Isaiah, right? Um, he – look, John Wall needs to – like hit his jump shots then he's legit he's still to me he can't take over a game like he needs to in the playoffs until the guy can hit a jump shot and he really can't that's a great point that's a fantastic point but I think John Wall is one of those 
guys in the league who's growing still. And he's not going to be a competent shooter by any stretch of the imagination. He, did. he, he needs not, to be. He's not he going to be the, be a right, he's not gonna be the half-court player like Kyrie Irving is, but I think what John Wall has that guys like Kyrie Irving don't have is that Russell Westbrook mentality of winning. You know no, he's mean? an athlete. Of winning at all costs. He's just an athlete. What, and that's what I appreciate of John Wall. I think he has the right sort of mentality going into every single game. When I watch John Wall play, I feel like he's giving everything he physically has in every single game. And there are not too many guys like that. And I think having a building block like that it's fantastic. I, uh, but you mentioned yeah, something. You're talking about the winning. team. You're talking about a team getting along and just like the the, the organization. Do you as see a whole. what I see? I don't. I, I look at body language between Bradley yeah, Beal yeah. and John Wall, and I don't. I think those guys hate each other. Think guts, of Demar. <laughs> think of Demar. Hey, look. I I played on a youth uh, soccer team that won three provincial championships. Okay, we could look at each other and communicate mm-hmm. without having to say anything. Right, there was a togetherness that that we had. All great teams I've coached and played on, right, and and I'm sure you know, uh, you guys can attest to this too. You you need that bond. If you don't have that extra bond, right, to to fight for your brother, to pick him up when he's down, you can't win when push comes to shove. And I see DeRozan and Lowry, they have that, right? They want to win for each other. I feel like Wall and Beal want to win for themselves. And the Washington fan base sucks. <laughs> I've never seen such a disinterested fan base. Like you go, like like uh, you know, you watch a game that when the Raptors play them, half their seats are empty. It's like watching a game in Atlanta. They couldn't even sell out for the playoff games, right? Uh, they re-signed him, right? Wall. Yep. The Four extension. One seventy. We'll see if he gets traded. I don't. I don't. See, unless they get another player there, another max. And they can't because they signed Porter, right? Unless That's what they, I was mentioning before when we're talking about fi- salary cap restraints. You know, Washington Wizards are kind of painting themselves in a corner right they now. They don't. I, they 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 don't have um, what it takes with their current roster. Like they need another piece, mm-hmm. I think, to be legit. It's difficult to have your front court of Marquise Morris and Marcin Gortat. Gortat, no, you, you, no, exactly. There's just not enough there, and their their bench. Not when you have e, what's his name, Mahimi. How making much sixteen making? million dollars a season, like to come off the bench mm-hmm. and and get you four rebounds a game, like I I, I don't see that team going anywhere. I, I see that team eventually having to blow it up. That's my long term look on the Wizards. It's fine. I, I I I disagree pretty much. I have a feeling they're going to come in second. That's sort of my bold prediction this year they in could. the East. They I have could. a feeling they they're going to come talent. second in the in the East. They're, I think they're going to break that fifty win mark, which is what they've been sort of gunning for for a while now. I think they're going to get like what are they going to get? Probably I'd say fifty one, maybe fifty two wins. Um, so for me, it, the, the Wizards are are a team that's that's very 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 likely to be able to take advantage of this whole Kyrie Irving and Cleveland thing more so than almost anyone else, I think. Um, if they can get home advantage uh, going into the playoffs, then we'd be good to go. Um, so so moving down the list, guys, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to have a conversation about the uh, the team Zach Lowe calls the Kazoos. Um, so the New York Knicks going into this season, uh, I guess, made this splashy move. I would say the unfortunate signing of Tim Hardaway Jr. to a four-year, $71 million contract. Big money. They also drafted Frank Natalikina, or Frankie Ann, I can't really pronounce his name to be completely honest with you, to play in the triangle offense with Phil Jackson, who subsequently left the organization as well. They gave <laughs> like $6 million a year to Ron Baker for some reason, an undrafted. I think he was maybe a late second-round pick. And they got Michael Beasley um, today. 
today too. And they, and they got Michael Beasley and Ramon Sessions oh. today. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got Michael Beasley. Oh, everything's this solved. This changes everything. Right. Changes everything. Change your predictions. Um, they had. How many wins did they have last year? I was going to say, they're obviously not going to be a good... They had 31 teams last year. I can see them sort of flipping with what the Nets did sort of last year, Mm. getting around the 20-win mark. Um, They still, right now, I'll base it on their roster, they still have Carmelo Anthony. The, The one hope that they can sort of just bank on is that Cleveland will somehow give them Kyrie Irving for mm. a slew of players. And honestly, if they can keep Przingis and have Kyrie Irving. Irving, my entire prediction will be completely different. But right now, based on Carmelo, based on Przingis, based on Hardaway and what they've had, um, I think they'll be better when people think. They'll probably finish around with them. They're not going to be like that terrible, terrible team. I think they'll finish right around where they are now. Same thing, 31 wins. Uh, I don't see them doing any better, that's for sure. Maybe a, a tad bit worse. But for me, they're not going to be that team that sort of everyone thinks they're going to be a 15-win or a 20-win ter- a team. It's going to be just like last year, I think. Yeah, they're. Uh, it, it's... You know, I love Joaquin Noah and everything I've heard coming in this season that, you know, he's finally healthy. Oh, yeah. He's finally getting on the court. But, <laughs> again, we're talking about a team that's kind of pushed themselves in the corner by making some weird, absurd free agent signing. Like, looking at Joaquin Noah making $17.7 million a year, going to next year, 18.5. Well, you know, that, that made sense if he was 90% of the player you was in Chicago. Yeah, but he's a half cadaver, No, but you're also signing him for locker room presence and you know what I mean, like a development piece, uh, a culture piece, right? He can work with the younger bigs. He does, and 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 you need those you need those guys. You know, look at Dennis Rodman, the worm, right? Like like you need the guys that are going to be willing to do that grunt work. But he has to be healthy, and ultimately doesn't look like he's going to be, right? Uh, look, if the Knicks trade Mellow and get a couple role players slash contributing now players, I see them doing better than they did last year. I think part of the reason things didn't aren't working out is because you have a disgruntled superstar on your team that wants the ball. And when that happens, it's just poisonous. Uh, I think you got to kind of hit the reset button a little bit to uh, to to get, get, get new attitudes in there. Um, look, they can't do worse than what they did last year. What you said there kind of reminded me a little bit of Rudy Gay with the Raptors, yeah, and how they exactly. how they kind of got rid of him exactly. at the time. We thought we were almost blowing it up yeah. when we we did that, and then in the end of the day, it Patrick Patterson and Vasquez and all those players ended up becoming great role players. Our yeah. team actually ended up gelling, and yeah. and then we had a winning culture after. So I think you're right. I think the Knicks, if they can, at this point, getting rid of Carmelo Anthony should be the number one goal. Um, yeah, like I, because the, the longer you hold on to him, too. Devalues as a commodity. He devalues, yeah. yeah. At this point, it's just soured. Like the 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 era is done. His time in New York is done. When a player has come out and openly said, "I don't," you know, "I want I want to go to this team," right? It's done. He's and, made and, enough money in his life too that he can afford to say, yeah. I, "I can I can take a you know." I also a don't terrible think Carmelo con- is a Derrick Rose contract. Carmelo is not. I think he could have have a role on a championship team because he's such an elite score uh, and potential rebounder but he is not he doesn't you know his leading his style of leadership 
uh, whether it's lead by doing, like he doesn't do, right? No, lead, lead by shooting, you mean? Right, yeah, lead by <laughs> shooting, like, you know, like, because different styles of leadership, right? You can lead by serving, right? You can lead by example. He doesn't really do anything like that. So you can't, be, he can't be the centerpiece of a team that's going to get better anymore. I think, I think you got to, you got to push the reset button and, and give more responsibility to, to Porzingis. All right, guys, moving down the list. The 28 and 54 Philadelphia 76ers. A uh, couple splashy moves this offseason. Bringing in JJ Reddick to a one year, $23 million contract. Bringing former Toronto Raptor Amir Johnston the fold of $11 million one year contract. Hmm. Also, trading up and getting potential transcendent point guard Markel Fultz. Guys, where do you stand right now, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia 76ers? And are they a playoff team coming into next, next season? It's funny because both J.J. Redick and Amir Johnson are now their two highest paid players. If they didn't sign them, Markel Fultz would have been their second highest paid player. Jared on their team. Bayless would be their and Jared Bayless would have been their highest paid player at nine million dollars. So look at all the value contracts on on this team. I mean, I've been pretty big on Philadelphia for for the off season. How does and this I think team gel together though. You're talking about Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Markel Fultz, plus the complementary pieces of J.J. Redick, Amir Johnson, and Dario Saric, as well as Jahil Okafor is also on They've the only team. been conceptualized in theory. Right. Well, I think you so started far. to see it last year though. As w- the Philadelphia 76ers, and I know this because of fantasy and me having Joel Embiid last year on my team, but when he was playing, the 76ers were actually a team that was yeah, not a decent. pushover at all. They, so they, they beat us one game. I, exactly. So I guess I'm basing it on the best that they can be or the best that I've seen out of them as opposed to probably what they're going to be. Um, I think they're going to get to 40 wins. I think they're not going to be above They're not going to be above 500. Uh, they're not going to make the playoffs, but they might be that ninth place team that is kind of in it at the end. Uh, if that team can stay healthy, specifically Embiid, because honestly, the they could have Ben Simmons. We haven't really seen what he can do or where he's going to play. Um, they could have Markel Fultz, who can score as much as he wants. Teams won't win based on that. Embiid's the sort of heart and soul of this team, and he's the reason why, uh, not just on the court, but even off the court, sort of with his you know yeah. his antics yeah. and, and keeping everything lighthearted. That's kind of the, the X factor in all of this. And I just think JJ Redick, Amir Johnson, it's all going to help that sort of with a veteran presence. It's going to help these guys sort of gel. So I guess my answer to that question is those older decisions for getting J.J. Redick, Amir Johnson, even Jared Bayless, uh, those kind of people can help mold without having to play as much and really sort of set these guys in the right path. And I think that'll be the goal is just to gel, not necessarily make the playoffs, not necessarily to get above 500, but just to get some wins and just sort of get yourself established as a team. I love the J.J. Redick signing. I think when you talk about someone who is dealing with such a limited skill set but makes the best of what he can possibly do in the court, you're talking about J.J. Redick. You're talking about a three-point specialist, but the guy who's such a tenacious hustler on mm-hmm. defense. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? A guy who can just walk in every practice. Good and locker kind of, room guy. Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, guys, moving down. Sorry, just a, just a quick point. Though. I think Amir Johnson will help specifically like Jaleel Okafor and a guy like, great point, great a guy like JJ Redick could help Stauskas. Yeah. So there's young players right there and they can yeah, help them with their game my, crafting. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you, Gravit. If everything goes to plan there, they have a potential to hit or like the east is very weak and sometimes with young teams like if they can get going and run right uh i think the 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 issue is going to be that all those young men like you you didn't dra- they they didn't draft players positionally to, uh, like i said this team has just been theorized but they've actually been theorized poorly because you have two point guards you have two point guards right two lead 
ball-dominant point guards. And I'm really curious to see how these young men will want to come in. They want to win Rookie of the Year award. They want to become all-stars. They want to have their own shoe contracts. Mm-hmm. And then you got Embiid, who himself wants a lot of the limelight. I, I'm curious to see if those young men can can put the team first and grow naturally. But in the modern era of a celebrity athlete, I I don't know. Uh, winning I, will I, help. I do. Winning always does. But I do like their signings of Redick and Amir Johnson for the reasons that you said. I put them at 37 wins. 37? What about a Jaheel Okafor, Carmelo Anthony trade? Okay, guys, I'm not going to go into All right, guys, the last team, the last team we're going to discuss in the Atlantic Division, the hometown Toronto Raptors. So I'll give you a little breakdown of what we did this offseason. We offloaded the Damari Carroll contract to the Brooklyn Nets in exchange for Justin Hamilton. We also flipped them a first and second round draft pick. We drafted OJ Ananobi. We yeah. unfortunately traded Corey Joseph, but we also brought back three-point specialist CJ Miles as well. Welcome. And we re-signed the man himself, Kyle Lowry, to a three-year, $100 million contract. Gregory Yeroshadis, the floor is yours, my friend. This is the best Toronto Raptors team in the history of the franchise. I think uh, within three years, we're going to get to the finals at least, I think. Um, This year is a test for the next two. We haven't, you know, we've been been, uh, careful with the salary cap. Because you don't want to spend, uh, get into that tax zone where you pay, what is it, graph? And you you pay double if you're in. But well, you get into the luxury tax, and then you have to pay into that. That's always what the teams are trying yeah. to avoid. So I think that's smart not to go out there because ultimately we need another piece. We're going to need another piece, mm-hmm. um, right? We're going to need one more one more impact player, uh, maybe some bench help. Uh, but this year, I see the Toronto Raptors battling for first place in the East. I think what the biggest thing we were missing last year was just that heat check guy we can depend on offensively off the bench. Lou, guy. Lou Williams? Well, Terrence Ross is a guy that comes to mind. Yeah. For me. You know, I think Terrence, like, the, I would make that trade every single day, Terrence but, Ross but or Serge Ibaka, but we were, like, we were missing that guy, that go-to spark, guy off spark. the bench. A spark. It's a great way to put it. I think CJ Miles is a perfect, perfect guy to bring into She's the organization. Fit, You're talking about a high-efficiency three-point shooter. You're not talking about a guy who's going to bring... This a, ain't a no great, Patrick Patterson. You know, He's not a great two-way player, and he does have his deficiencies as a player. But we are talking about an amazing three-point shooter. He's a shot maker. Exactly, exactly. And that is what we needed coming this season. Also, giving Kyle Lowry a three-year, $100 million contract. Fair market value for for what he's done with his organization. Also, a three-year contract. Same thing with Serge Ibaka. I know Graf is not really big on Serge Ibaka, but you got to consider what other options do we have to put at the four coming into the season. Because I don't think, if we didn't retain Serge Ibaka, I think ESPN stating that Toronto Raptors finished at six is justifiable. But I think bringing back no, Serge Ibaka... That's biased. That's biased. To them. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Sixth? They, but every year they put us down there. And every year we prove them wrong. Yeah, but I'm saying without Serge Ibaka, six is justifiable. With Serge Ibaka, it's just absolutely deplorable the statement to say. Oh, that we yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I don't see how a team that's been the winningest in the conference for the past three, four years outside of Cleveland, right, the team that has the best winning percentage consistently, you're talking about consistency, mm-hmm. you're going to put them that low. Just pure American media bias. Look, what's the number, though? What, what number win do you have? I see us 
pushing upwards of 50, 55 wins. I think we're going for first place in the East. I don't think we'll be battling with Boston. I think Cleveland will be battling with because Cleveland, I think, learned this year. First of all, I think LeBron's going for the MVP. Right, he's going for the MVP, so he's going to play this season, which means that they're not going to get the finish where they just kind of like fucked off towards the end of the season. He's going to play it out. I think it's going to be us in Cleveland battling for that one spot. I see us getting upwards between fifty-five and fifty-eight wins. To me, I don't. Well, just a like, why would LeBron, if they're going to go for another playoff run, why would he not he take dis- a re- like? Why would he not be LeBron wanting to rest to go for a, to another been finals? Disrespected. He. Felt like he should have been in the MVP conversation last year. He sat, you know, he sat out. You know, he was being strategic the way that he was. But I think he's getting his body ready for a full season. I, and, I don't think and, so. And to me, because he, if was... he doesn't have home court against the Warriors. They can't beat the Warriors. They were trying to get home court until they realized about halfway through the year that that they couldn't get it, and then they shut it down. Yeah, but they're not going to beat the Warriors. They're not going to get home court against the Warriors. Tell that. It doesn't... Tell that to the best player in the world. You can't do this. Okay. Like I said, I just see LeBron coming out with a statement year, and if and if he plays good in the regular season, the Cavs' record will be very good. Yeah, so, so I, if, I, I see us and, and and Cleveland battling it out for first with Boston behind us. Yes, because Cleveland's splashy offseason moves will get them over the hump. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> what, what was it called? They're Jeff already Green. over the hump. Hopefully, this is like the last team. It's gonna be like okay. Hopefully, Jeff Green can bring something to our bench unit because Jeff you're Green is underrating been... the signing of uh, Derrick Rose. Oh, and, and the fact I'm serious and the, and, and the fact that Kevin Love is now going to get more of a share and we don't know what Irving's going to bring back that's a great Cleveland's point Cleveland's still going to be a good team right I, yeah right, as is now I guess so my prediction on the Raptors, the Raptors. yeah it's going to be interesting to see how sort of the young the young players progress I'm excited to see OG uh, oh, me too you, you're, you mentioned that uh you know, Danny Chow. is someone that I'm not a fan of but honestly in the system and they have it right now I don't I don't see. I'm not as optimistic as Greg is. I'm going to project 51 or 52 wins if I have to go what one more win. 51. So okay. I, if I have to go one more win than last year, just to, to show it again, it doesn't matter as long as the team can be healthy going into the playoffs. The regular season record for me doesn't matter. It's from January until March where they have where OG's back that they have to really really. Make sure that they have a team. There's salary cap locked for the next three years at over 120 but million. You say the regular season doesn't matter. Right, I I think. Look, I know you're 100 percent right. Playoffs, because this team has proven that they can win in the regular season. Well, for this team, I think though this team. Okay, I think though the Raptors need to get together and say, okay, we lost our, the Atlantic Division title this year to Boston. Let's go back and get it. And while we're at it, let's try to get first in the East. You know what I mean? And then because then you're talking about home court in, in the playoffs. And yeah, that matters. Of course, I'm just you know if you have the pick though of becoming first in the East or and, you know making yeah, it to the finals guaranteed, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. taking the, the finals. Thing, yeah. So you're saying as long as the record is is good, okay. But I would matters. like to see though the next level where it's like uh, we put together such a strong regular season that. We just haven't been losing much this year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'd like to see us on that kind of level. I think, you know, I'd like to see 60, but I think 60 is going to come the following year. Pushing it. All right, guys, let Homer me do right, right down in the middle at 53. Uh, unfortunately, we can't really get into our top five Canadian ba- favorite Canadian basketball players of all time. We'll get into that next week. Very long podcast today, but uh, number 20, guys. Happy congratulations, 20th. man. Uh, another special thanks to Wayne Parrish. Uh, I just want to thank him again for coming in today. Um, and we'll be back next week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We're out. Peace, Peace out, T-Dot. Boop. Give it-